0: would you join me in the word of prayer our father we come to you now asking you to open your word to us and particularly lord to open our eyes to rightly discern the events in our world as compared to the word of god and the word of god alone i pray lord that you would make us those who are faithful to pray for this world which is in such turmoil in such pain in such agony As Paul said in Romans that the creation groans awaiting the revealing of the sons of God. And so we would ask you to bless our time this day. Make us wise, make us discerning as we seek to know your will. We pray in Christ's name, amen. I'm going to take a little break from our series on prayer. I want to ask you to turn with me to Matthew 24. Matthew chapter 24. And for the moment, we'll consider verse 6. Jesus is giving his Olivet Discourse, his riveting sermon on how to understand the end times. Now, I know that we're dealing with the end times every Sunday evening. But this past week in talking to the pastoral staff, they felt that I should give a response to what is happening in Israel, the war with Hamas. Just to try to get everyone on the same page in in one message, if possible, rather than me just saying, well, wait till the Millennium Series is over and this will all be clear. That's my hope this morning, to kind of get us all thinking in the same direction. Matthew 24, verse 6, the Lord Jesus Christ declares, and you are going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. Now, we're going to return to this text in a little while, but I'll say up front that it's likely not what you think it is at first glance. This is just a starting point for us. My question for today and the title of my message is, what does Israel's war with Hamas tell us about the end times? What does Israel's war with Hamas tell us about the end times? I'll give you the short answer right now, nothing we don't already know. Nothing we don't already know. However, the events of what's happening every single day right now, they do have an end times feel to them, don't they? And in a sense, if that heightens your awareness of the eschatology, the study of the end times, we would say that's healthy, that's good. So what I'm going to do today is, what you might call a Christian's guide to properly placing events in Israel in the news, placing them alongside Scripture. This is not going to be a comprehensive proof of our pre-tribulational, pre-millennial, dispensational view of Scripture. This is a summary. And I'll come back to those words in a minute. So can we say that we are clearly in the end times, that the return of Christ is close? Yes, we can. But not because of what's happening in Israel. Instead, we say this because the New Testament teaches that the end times began with the inauguration of the church age. Jesus himself says at the end of the Bible, Revelation 22, 20, He who bears witness to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. And John adds, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Quickly is sometimes translated coming soon. It really has more the idea of when he does return, it's going to be sudden, it's going to be unexpected. But consider First Peter 4.7, the end of all things as it is at hand. Therefore, be of sound thinking and sober spirit. James 5.8, you be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Or consider that the Apostle Paul taught the Thessalonians in the passage we read earlier to consider the coming rapture of the saints, and he included himself as one who might be raptured. So, here's what I can say with total confidence. You ready? The return of Christ is closer than it's ever been. (laughs) We could close in prayer now and that would be enough. But Before I get to the kind of meat of what I'd like to share this morning, let me do two housekeeping items to set the stage. First of all, I want to give you three definitions. And second, I want to give you the background to the current situation in Israel. First of all, the three... Words that I blew by you a moment ago, the leadership of Grace Bible Church holds to, and our doctrinal statement agrees with a pre-tribulational, premillennial dispensationalism. If it's any comfort, I still have to use spell check on all of those. <laughs> pre-tribulational. What is that? That is the view that the physical rapture, the taking up of the living church on earth will happen prior to pre. The seven-year time of tribulation on the earth, which is the time of God's judgment on the nations, the time when Antichrist will appear on the scene, and so forth. We hold to a pre-tribulational rapture. It happens before the great tribulation. Pre-millennial. If you're coming on Sunday evenings, this is, this is old news to you. But that says that the return of Christ will happen before he sets up his kingdom on earth. That our current time is not the millennium and that during this time Israel as a nation will be restored as a God-fearing and Messiah-worshipping nation. Or to put it as the beloved Charles Spurgeon did in 1889, I cannot imagine a kingdom without the king present. So we are pre-millennial. The millennium happens when Christ returns. And dispensationalism. There are many versions of this, but the basic definition involves two variables. First of all, a belief that all Scripture is interpreted the same way. That there isn't one set of rules for interpreting end times prophecy and another set of rules for everything else. All Scripture is interpreted with a literal, historical, grammatical hermeneutic. That's the first variable, and as I mentioned the second variable is a belief in a literal restored Israel. A literal restored Israel. Many continue to say that dispensationalism is relatively new on the theological scene. The most recent to say this was Dr. Al Mohler, and we love Dr. Moeller, But he uh, wrongly stated that dispensationalism was invented with John Nelson Darby in 1825. I've already dealt with that myth in multiple messages during our Millennium series, and so I'll refer you to those. But that is a myth. That's the first bit of housekeeping, those definitions. There's a second bit of housekeeping. I want to give you the background to the current situation. I, I am not a historian. I'm not a political expert. So I'm going to give you some very basic and easily obtained information concerning the October 7th massacre of Jews in Israel and the war which rages against Hamas even today. Beginning at 6.30 a.m. on October 7th, the physical barrier between the Gaza Strip and western Israel was breached by thousands of armed Hamas fighters. They began slaughtering Israeli civilians. Other Hamas fighters came in motorboats to the beaches, and still others came in on paragliders so that they could get farther inland. At least 1,400 Israelis were killed, including women who first were raped, children, toddlers, and babies who were beheaded. Hamas fighters, now we know, calling their family to brag about how many children they slaughtered. At least 4,500 Israelis were wounded but survived. Over 200 were taken hostage by Hamas, most of whom are still held and incidentally, several dozen Americans were killed in this attack as well. Thousands of rockets were and continued to be, continue to be fired upon Israel. The full-time Israeli Defense Force consists of about 100,000 full-time soldiers. They've called up 300,000 more. It's the largest and fastest reserve call-up in Israel's history. On October 9th, rockets began to be fired from Lebanon toward Israel. And almost every day since, counterattacks have been happening. Anticipating Israel's retaliation, countless Palestinian citizens of the Gaza Strip have attempted to leave, but Hamas fighters continue to either shoot those who are trying to leave or prevent them in order to force Israel to cause civilian casualties. The war is ongoing. Israel's strategy is no longer to try to broker any sort of peace with Hamas, which they have done multiple times in the past, but now their strategy is to simply eliminate from them from existence. You've all read in the news how even in the United States, many believe that Hamas accurately represents the plight of the Palestinian people, Arabs, who have been displaced from their land, and that Hamas represents the ethnic group known as the Palestinians. So that's just the very basic background. With our remaining time, I'd like to give you the do's and don'ts of understanding current events in Israel. I'm going to spend most of our time on the don'ts, and I'm going to do those first. We're going to return to Matthew 24, 6 in a little bit, but this is more of a survey, so I'm going to reference numerous scriptures, five don'ts of understanding current events in Israel. The first don't. Don't let the media determine your theology. Don't let the media determine your theology. Don't fall for the mainline media spin or lies. Don't fall for even theologians who don't believe in the restored Israel in how they interpret historical events. And for example... Many in the media literally blame Israel for this conflict because of the contention that all the territory known as Israel and the surrounding area was originally Muslim territory and that Muslims have a right to the land which they had first. And of course, since we know the Bible, we know that the land of Israel was deeded to Abraham and his descendants 4,000 years ago. Joshua and the Israelite army entered Canaan by divine decree in 1406 B.C. And yes... The Jews were mostly exiled from 586 BC to beginning their return in about 534 or so. But the Jews were almost completely ousted only for the first time from their own land at the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 by the Romans. But many Jews still remained for about 50 more years fighting for their land. In 132, Simon Bar Kokhba led a Jewish revolt against Rome, which lasted several years. Bar Kokhba was eventually killed, and the Jews were either all killed or enslaved. After this final defeat, Emperor Hadrian renamed the area after Israel's political and historical enemies, the Philistines, naming it Palestine as a way to erase Israel from existence. Arabs living in the area over time began to be known as Palestinian Arabs and there certainly wasn't always a Muslim presence there since Islam wasn't even founded until the 7th century. So why are so many blaming Israel for this war? Well it goes back to 1917 when during World War 1 the British Empire took control of Palestine, we'll go ahead and call it that, that's what everyone called it then. This control lasted until 1948. In 1917, the Brits promised unconditionally all the Jews of the world, the entire area of Palestine, in what is known as the Balfour Declaration of 1917. This was, according to one theologian, quote, the rallying cause of early Zionism. Now, I use the word Zionism because that's a negative term. That's a negative term that says those dumb Jews just want their own country. So when you see Zionism, that's not generally a positive thing. And that was by a theologian who I will quote later as well. Well, in retaliation for this promise, the Arabs in the area began in 1920, what became known as the pogroms, the violent riots, which had one intention to eradicate an entire ethnic group, the Jews. In this particular case, you saw mass murders of Jews in Jerusalem in particular, these riots and mass murders continued for a decade because the Brits, who still controlled the area politically, they responded to these riots and murders in very soft terms. And so the Arabs learned that rioting and murdering actually slowed the, the uh, immigration of Jews to the area. Why was this so effective? Because every time the Arabs would riot and murder, the Brits would make concessions and give them more land. It's like if a toddler yells and you give him a cookie, what did he just learn? He just learned that if you yell, you get another cookie. By 1937, the Arabs controlled the entire areas of Judea and Samaria, except for little, tiny pieces of land. The Jews got a tiny strip of land. And by 1939, in response to continued pressure from Muslim Arabs... The Brits restricted immigration into Palestine. Only Arabs could come in, not Jews. Many blame the Brits and the Balfour Declaration for setting up what turned into what is now a century of conflict. But generally, the blame is aimed at the Jews and how dare they want their own nation. And of course, came World War II and the Holocaust and finally, and perhaps the one good thing that the United Nations ever did they officially established Israel as a nation so that the millions of displaced Jews around the world would have a place to go after World War II. But I point out that a leading millennial theologian who does not hold to a restored nation of Israel in the future, the eminent Dr. Kim Riddlebarger, he phrased it this way, quote, "...the United Nations established a Jewish state in Palestine." Now, did you catch that? First of all, a Jewish state instead of Israel. And second, in Palestine. That's the Roman name given to Israel in the second century. A word you see thrown around a lot by the media right now is that Israel is, quote, an apartheid state. Meaning a state that just wants to get rid of an ethnic group, the Arabs. Or that wants to be totally separated from the Arabs that when Israel was officially formed as a nation in the late 1940s, they expelled all the Palestinian Arabs. That's not true. The very founding documents of Israel invited Arabs, by the way, to remain. And ironically, even in the midst of a continuing war with Arab nations, Israel's own Declaration of Independence says this, quote, We appeal in the very midst of the onslaught launched against us now for months to the Arab inhabitants of the state of Israel to preserve peace and participate in the building of the state on the basis of full and equal citizenship and due representation in all its provisional and permanent institutions. That's an invitation to stay and to live in peace. During the 1947-1948 war, Arab leaders told Arab families all throughout Israel that Jews were coming for them to kill them and that they needed to leave quickly. And the Arab families believed them. 300,000 Arabs left their homes, which weren't even near a war zone. They weren't asked to leave. They weren't forced to leave by the Israeli government. But once they did leave, you know what the Arabs said publicly? They cried foul and said, Israel is expelling the Arabs. Notably, by the way, the surrounding Arab nations wouldn't take in the refugees. There was one nation on earth that gave food and shelter and clothing to the Arabs who were trying to leave Israel. It was the Israeli government. Today, Arab citizens in Israel have exactly the same legal status and rights as Jews. 20% of the citizens of Israel are Arab by descent. In the West Bank, most Palestinians live under Palestinian government, but all the Arabs in the Gaza Strip are controlled by Hamas. Arabs... Have participated in Israel's government. There's an Arab that sits on the Israeli Supreme Court right now. So when you hear Israel is evil because they're murdering Palestinians and want to deny Palestinians basic human rights and the land really belongs to the Palestinians, all of that is false. So don't let the media determine your theology. They don't get to do that. It's a second don't. Don't mistake the Israel of today as the promised restored Israel. Don't mistake the Israel of today as the promised, restored Israel. And I'm, I'm not going to get into the arguments of the church being the new Israel. We've done that in other settings. We'll continue to do that in our Sunday evening millennium series. But for all who believe, as we do, that God's promises to restore national Israel are literal promises and mean an actual, political, autonomous, independent nation existing on the land given to them by God through Abraham is very important to get the timing right. For decades, since the formation of the current nation of Israel, dispensationalists have used that as the giant aha moment to our covenant theologian brothers who believe Israel will not be reformed as a nation, but that's really premature. Now, certainly the formation of a nation in Israel in the 1940s is unprecedented And maybe even in the realm of the miraculous, since never in history has a nation been disbanded. And 2,000 years later, the descendants of those reformed the nation. And of course, it proves that God is completely able to reconstitute the nation whenever he wants to. But it's premature to say, aha, Israel has been regathered as a nation, just like the Bible says. Just a simple survey of some key texts will tell us that the Israel of today is not the promised restored Israel. I can't do this comprehensively. I'm just going to give you a little taste. Here's a few qualities of the prophetic, future, regathered, restored Israel. The first quality, national repentance for crucifying their Messiah. They'll repent as a nation for crucifying Christ. Zechariah 12.10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace And of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And when does this happen? When does this national repentance happen? Just before or at or shortly after the return of Christ, as described just two chapters later in Zechariah 14. So the return of Christ, the national repentance of Israel, are in very, very close proximity to one another. Currently, national Israel and nearly all Jews on earth continue in a spiritual blindness. Romans 11.25 indicates that the partial blindness or hardening of the heart is the current state of Israel until the end of the church age, which features Gentiles being brought into the kingdom. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 10, beginning in verse 1, "'Brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation.'" For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For not knowing about the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So the first feature is a nationally repentant Israel. I'll take less time on the others. Another feature, Jerusalem as physically the highest point on earth. Jerusalem will physically be the highest point on earth. Isaiah 2 verse 2, Jerusalem is the highest mountain, quote, lifted above the hills. Micah 4.1 says the same thing almost verbatim. Now you might say, well, that's just symbolic. Well, the great tribulation will feature massive topological shifts in the earth. Revelation 16.20, and every island fled away and the mountains were not found. What's left? Jerusalem, the highest mountain. Here's another feature. Israel is beloved of all the nations. Israel is beloved of all the nations. Micah 4, verse 2. Many nations will come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh and to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may instruct us from His ways and that we may walk in His paths. For from Zion will go forth the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. Here's another feature. Any nation who disobeys God will be punished instantly. Any nation who disobeys God will be punished instantly. Zechariah fourteen sixteen and 7 promises instant discipline that's a year long or more for any nation that refuses to bring worship to God annually. Here's another feature. The historic enemies of Israel will be worshipers of Yahweh. The historic enemies of Israel will be worshippers of Yahweh. One of my favorite passages in Isaiah is chapter 19, beginning in verse 23. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And if you can picture a little bit of basic uh, geography, Egypt down here, Assyria over here, what's in between? Israel. The Assyrians will come into Egypt and the Egyptians into Assyria and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians In that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom Yahweh of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. There's another feature. Israel will live in total peace they'll live in total peace Isaiah 2 beginning in verse 4 and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war Jeremiah 33:14 says that Jerusalem will dwell in security You know we have a lot of a uh, lot of political talk about gun laws in our nation Go to Israel and try to take a gun away from a Jew. They have to have him. Here's another feature. Islam will no longer exist. Islam will no longer exist. Revelation 20 says that at the beginning of the reign of Christ, Satan will be bound, quote, so that he will not deceive the nations any longer. The natural result of Satan not deceiving the nations will be the eradication of organized false religion. Here's another feature. I haven't numbered these. I don't know how many we've said. Jerusalem will feature a new glorious temple of God. A new glorious temple of God. Ezekiel 40 through 48 describes the coming temple in Jerusalem with enough detail that you could make blueprints from it. The the dome that's on the the Muslim dome that's on the Temple Mount today, uh, it's temporary. If you're going to go see it, make sure your insurance is up to date because it's going. Oh yeah, one more feature. Jesus will be on the earth. How about that one? That's the main one. Jesus will be on the earth. Zechariah 14.9, Jesus is king over the earth. Zechariah, or Jeremiah 33.15, Jesus is reigning on the earth. How do we know the Israel of today is not the Israel that will be restored Because Jesus isn't here yet. The first don't. Don't let the media determine your theology. The second don't mistake the Israel of today as the promised, restored Israel. Here's the third don't deny Israel her divine land right. Don't deny Israel her divine land right. Just because the Israel of today is not the promised, restored Israel with the features I just highlighted particularly concerning acknowledging Christ as their Messiah, that doesn't give anyone the right to deprive them of their land. No one. Scripture is very clear that ethnic Israel's right to the land is divine in origin, and that her current boundaries, by the way, are nowhere near the biblical boundaries allotted to her by God. This past week, Jewish political commentator Ben Shapiro, he asked a supporter of Hamas... Under the disguise of supporting Palestinians, he asked how much of the land of Palestine was, quote, occupied by the Jews. And her answer was, all of it. All of it. Meaning the real agenda is the annihilation of Jews as a people. And Shapiro made the astute observation that Israel as a nation, if worked with peacefully, has always been willing to support a nation of Palestine in some territory. They've shown this historically. Just a few days ago on the Lebanese news channel, top Hamas official Ghazi Hamad made these remarks, quote: "Israel is a country that has no place in our land. We must remove that country because it constitutes a security, military and political catastrophe to the Arab and Islamic nation and must be finished." We are not ashamed to say this with full force. And the news anchor asked the direct question, does that mean the annihilation of Israel? And Hamad replied, yes, of course. He goes on to say, the existence of Israel is illogical. The existence of Israel is what causes all the pain, blood, and tears. It is Israel, not us. We are the victims of the occupation, period. Therefore, nobody should blame us for the things we do. On October 7th, October 10th, October 1 million, whatever that is, Everything we do is justified. Listen to Psalm 83. O oh God, do not be, remain at rest. Do not be silent. And O oh God, do not be quiet. For behold, your enemies roar and those who hate you have lifted up their heads. They make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones. They have said, come and let us wipe them out as a nation that the name of Israel be remembered no more. This has been going on for 3,000 years, and this is nothing new. Don't deny Israel her divine land right. No one has the right to do that. Here's a fourth don't. Don't make two common prophecy mistakes. Don't make two common prophecy mistakes. The first mistake is that of covenant theologians who generally believe that the church is the new Israel or some variation of that theme. I've read several amillennial and covenantal theologians on the subject of recent events and much is very commendable and not surprisingly so, of course. But I've been looking and looking and I have not yet found one that has attempted to deal with Israel's divine right to the land. Not one that I've seen has defended that Israel is simply defending their homeland. Again, Dr. Kim Riddlebarger states this, in an article just this past couple of weeks, quote, the land promises to Israel have been universalized in the new covenant era and is typological of a greater heavenly promise yet to be received. To keep the land promise in place on a quote-unquote literal, the quotes are his, interpretation, you must gut the Abrahamic covenant of its universal eschatological force in the new covenant. Now, let me just... Let me just interpret that for you. What he's referencing is Romans 4.13. This is his whole point. This is everything. His whole argument stands on one verse. For the promise to Abraham or to his seed that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So will all who believe Christ by faith be heirs of the whole world? Yes, of course. But that's not mutually exclusive with Israel receiving her land promises. And it is a huge hermeneutical stretch to say that Romans fourteen or four thirteen rather means Israel as a nation will never exist again. That's the first prophecy mistake. The second prophecy mistake on the other side of the aisle, the major mistake made by dispensationalists historically, and frankly, I wouldn't actually call them dispensationalists because they interpret the news alongside Scripture, and we don't want to do that. But the mistake is using world events. To declare that Christ's return is imminent. The fact is, is that since 1948, theologians get excited to declare that the end is near. 1948, Israel's war for independence. 1956, the Suez Crisis. 1967, the Six-Day War. 1973, the Yom Kippur War. Wars with Lebanon in 1982 and in 2006. And it seems like every time a major event like that happens, dispensational students of Bible prophecy go bananas with declarations that Armageddon is here and the return of Christ is any moment. So don't make those two common prophecy mistakes. Let me give you a fifth don't. Don't interpret the news as authoritative. Don't interpret the news as authoritative. Any pastor who says that the return of Christ is near because of the news, if he has integrity, must add phrases like, I believe, or it seems to be, or I think, or it looks a lot like. And I suppose that's okay and But every generation has been saying this. What's more erroneous, however, is to attribute current events to things which will happen after the church is raptured. And that seems to be a a major error. I want to return now to the actual context of Matthew 24, verse 6. And you are going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. What is this in response to? It's in response to verse 3. Now as he, that is Jesus, was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? You notice they're asking about signs of Jesus coming. Verse 6, wars, rumors of wars, many other terrible things. Verse 7, for nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. In the various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but these, all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you the tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will deceive many. And because lawlessness is multiplied, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Now many are saying well those things are happening now but then jesus gets very precise and specific about this time verse 15 therefore when you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through daniel the prophet standing in the holy place that is specific Jesus is referencing Daniel chapter 9 about Antichrist breaking a covenant he's made with Israel and setting up the worship of himself in Jerusalem. And according to Daniel 9, this happens at the halfway point of the tribulation and begins what Jesus would call the great tribulation, the second three and a half years. Then Jesus warns, in that day, now it's time to run if you're in Jerusalem or in Judea. Verse 16, then let those who are in Judea, they must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get things that are out in the house. And whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his garment. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. What happens then? Verse 27. For just as the lightning comes from the east and appears even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. The next thing that happens is the return of Christ. Verse 28, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. What is that? The gathering of vultures is a reference to Ezekiel 39, 17, which predicts that the vultures will eat the bodies of the slain after the battle of Armageddon at the return of Christ. Now, why do I bring all this up? It's so important for us to understand. Remember, we define the word pre-tribulational. We hold to a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 gives great detail about the coming of Antichrist, but never says, Church, get ready to endure Antichrist. It never says that. 1 Thessalonians 4 comforts the saints in that we will not endure the tribulation. But instead, the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. That's seven years prior to the return of Christ. We meet Him in the air. We return with Him to heaven. This is the meaning of John fourteen one through 3 Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's the rapture. This is also the meaning of 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this corruptible must put on the incorruptible, and this mortal must put on immortality. So what are the signs that we're to look for concerning this next event in prophetic history? What do we look for to see that the rapture of the church is about to happen? Nothing. Nothing. The only ones who will need to compare the news to Matthew 24 are those who get saved during the Great Tribulation. So it's an error to compare the news to Matthew 24 despite the great similarities. On April 7th, 1889, Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon entitled, watching for Christ's coming, and he dealt with the question of when. When will he come, he said. Ah, that is the question, the question of questions, and then he answered it. He will come in his own time. This is exactly what Jesus himself said, Matthew twenty-four thirty-six: Of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. So those are the five don'ts of understanding current events in Israel. I want to give you five do's. These will be shorter and they will be surprising. The first do. Do love Israel as God's chosen nation. Do love Israel as God's chosen nation. Yes, as a nation, they're under God's discipline of spiritual blindness. But many unsaved Jews are praying to Yahweh for help. Don't discount that. Don't discount tank commanders praying with their soldiers through the Psalms asking for Yahweh to defend their land. We don't know how many are being brought to genuine repentance. The Bible identifies God-fearers, those who have not come all the way to Christ and yet they have a profound respect for it and in some sense a a, a knowledge of Yahweh as the one true God. Cornelius, Lydia, the God-fearers all through the book of Acts. Now, This doesn't save them individually. They still must be regenerate. And yet God in His mercy has given them a measure of grace to seek after Him at some level. And I don't have time to explore that in more detail. I'm just making the observation that there's never a call to be happy. There's never a call to gloat about the spiritual blindness of Israel. Never. And never do we say in any sense whatsoever, Well, they had it coming. Instead, we join Paul with the sorrow over the suffering and the spiritual blindness of Israel as a nation. Paul said in Romans 9, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Did you catch that? The Apostle Paul just said, if me losing my salvation could affect the salvation of Israel, I would do it. That's who we join. Here's a second do eagerly await the rapture and the return of Christ. Eagerly await the rapture and the return of Christ. This theme is all over the New Testament. Romans 8.23, not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Romans 8.25, but if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. First Corinthians one seven, we are eagerly awaiting the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Galatians five five, we through the Spirit by faith are eagerly awaiting for the hope of righteousness. Philippians three twenty, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for a sa- eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 9 28, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. That makes the news easier to bear when we look up, we look for Christ. Here's a third to do. Do suffer in obedience. Do suffer in obedience. Now, I find it very interesting. The book of First Peter is essentially a guide on how to suffer during the end times. How to suffer during the end times. Remembering that the end times began with the inauguration of the church age. And one of the biggest emphases that we have in First Peter dealing with how to suffer during the end times is how to deal with relationship issues. Isn't that interesting? And certainly, relationship issues can be part of suffering. Let me just give you a brief survey. The relationship to your own sanctification. The relationship to your own sanctification. 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 1, Therefore, laying aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, we're to long for the Word of God. In other words, we're, we're serious about the business of Christ's likeness. Why? Because Christ could return any moment. How about our relationship to authority? 1 Peter 2.13 Be subject for the sake of the Lord to every human institution. Whether to a king is the one in authority and so forth. Uh, four verses later, verse 17 Honor all people. Love the brethren. Fear God. Honor the king. How about wives' relationships with husbands? 1 Peter three one: In the same way, you wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of of their wives how about husbands relationships with wives first peter 3 7 you husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered how about our relationship to unbelievers to the lost first peter 3 15 sanctify christ as lord in your hearts Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and fear. How about your relationship to the local church? 1 Peter four eight. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. How about the shepherd's relationships to church members? 1 Peter 5 2. Shepherd the flock of God among you, overseeing not under compulsion, but willingly according to God. How about church members' relationships to shepherds? 1 Peter 5 5. You younger men likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility and Toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. All of this is in the context of living as if today is the last day that 's the context first peter one six in this, you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you understand how profound this is? That if if you ask the question, well, it looks like the end times, what am I supposed to do about this? Husbands, love your wives. Oh, but look, I mean, this war could spread to our nation. What am I supposed to do? Wives, submit to your husbands. Win them without a word. Oh, but the news is just so depressing. What am I supposed to do? Shepherds, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Members, obey your leaders. Isn't that comforting? Isn't that a joy? You don't have to do anything except obey the Lord. Why is this how Peter says you live in view of the end times? Because when Christ comes, you don't want to be caught with your hand in the cookie jar of disobedience. How embarrassing. You want to be found in humble obedience. Here's a fourth do, and I'm going to take one of the previous points and just drill more deeply to it because I'm very concerned about it. Do be obedient church members. Do be obedient church members. There are some who, I pray hear this, who are currently under church discipline And in my talks with hundreds of pastors over the years, it is rare, it is infrequent that that person returns and repents and make things right. That is rare. But any time that the end of all things is brought to our minds, that ought to motivate the immediate humbling and immediate self-denial. I want to remind you of something that Pastor Chad Vegas said in our conference last Saturday. He referenced Matthew 16 where Jesus declares that the duly appointed leadership of Christ's church are given the keys to the kingdom. Matthew 16, 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Keys open and they lock. They unlock and they lock. Traditionally, particularly since the Great Reformation, this has been understood as admission into church membership keys that open the door, and excommunication from a church, disfellowship, keys that lock a door. It's important to point out this is not just you can't be part of a church. This is a declaration that this person is not to be considered part of the church universal. This is heavy duty. Matthew 18, 17, Jesus said, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as the Gentile and the tax collector. In other words, you operate under the assumption of false faith. Don't be found under church discipline when Christ returns. That is a seriously, spiritually dangerous place to be. And the fifth do, conversely, For those to whom this applies, do be obedient church leaders. Do be obedient church leaders. I am just dumbstruck at pastors or elders or church leaders who have lost their way regarding to whom the church belongs. The church is not the leaders, the church belongs to Christ. And I'm dumbstruck at how they've lost what to do, not knowing their duties. And when I first began pastoring, it became very apparent that I didn't know what to do. I I knew how to teach the Bible. I knew that, but I didn't know anything else. I, I didn't know what else I was supposed to do. I didn't know who to turn to. So I sat down and I made a list from 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. About what shepherds in the church are supposed to do. It it seemed logical to me to do that. It was a simple exercise, but I ended up with a a four page bullet point list. In God's providence and His mysterious plan for me, my formal education came a little later in my ministry. And I'm very, very thankful for it. I, I I have good perspective, I think, because of that. And so I took many classes in theology, I took classes in ecclesiology, the study of the church. I took classes in pastoral ministry. I read book after book after book about the duties of a church leader. You know what I found? After eight years of formal instruction, my original little list I made from 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus was still exactly accurate. The duties were the same. Oh, that's such a comfort for me as a shepherd. I never have to reinvent the ministry, or worse, I never have to reinvent myself. It stays the same. But what drives me, and what drives all of our leaders, is the knowledge in the back of our minds that Christ could end all of this anytime. Anytime. Even among our elders, as we were, we were pushing as hard as we could in human power to get into this building, one of our great motivating factors was, we may not have five years to wait. Let's be as effective as we can right now. I'd like to finish our time this morning by returning to a text which was our scripture reading several Sundays ago, the Sunday after the attack on Israel. And I'd like to end that reading by praying the same prayer we prayed together that morning. I want to have you turn with me to Psalm 122. Psalm 122. And then we will close in prayer. As you find Psalm 122, I would like to ask you to stand together as we read this glorious Psalm. And then we'll close. Psalm 122 of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of Yahweh. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, which is built as a city joined together, to which the tribes, the tribes of Yah, go up, a testimony for Israel to give thanks to the name of Yahweh. For there thrones sit for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and tranquility within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, may peace be within you. For the sake of the house of Yahweh our God, I will seek your good. Let's pray together. Our Father, we hear in this Psalm of David, his love for Jerusalem as the central city of God the city where the house of god acted as the center of worship and we are commanded in this psalm to pray for the peace of jerusalem and for tranquility within her palaces and while we know that the israel of today nationally continues in rejection of her messiah and that zechariah 12:10 has yet to be fulfilled the pouring of on the inhabitants of jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication to look on him whom they have pierced and to repent to their Messiah. Still, we join with the Apostle Paul's deep yearning when he proclaimed, "...for I wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises." We believe, Paul, when he proclaimed concerning Israel that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. And though as a nation Israel has not yet repented, yet we beg you to be merciful to them this day. Spare them further pain. Defend the land given to Abraham's descendants. May the true king of Israel come soon and bring peace. May the kingdom of Christ come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May you let this time of suffering in Israel be to the salvation of many who turn to the true Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And may you bring us safely to that day when the nations stream into Jerusalem with gladness of heart and knowledge of the Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.